welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Welcome to the latest of IOM3 Investigates podcast in the Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining series. I am Fiona Robinson, currently Faculty Support Manager for Computing, Engineering and Science at the University of South Wales and Vice Chair of the IOM3 Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining, also known as WIM3 Committee. This IOM3 WIM3 podcast series focuses on speaking with women in various backgrounds and industries, from engineering and materials to minerals and mining, to chat about their backgrounds and careers and how they got to where they are now, be it by education, industry or other routes. In this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Glanville, Sarah joined Renishaw following the completion of her PhD at the University of Birmingham in Materials Science and Engineering in 2018. During her PhD, she specialised in atmospheric corrosion of aluminium alloys, using techniques such as Raman spectroscopy and synchrotron tomography to investigate corrosion growth kinetics and propagation. This was for applications in the aerospace industry. On joining Renishaw, Sarah worked in their materials analysis and research group as a materials scientist, carrying out materials analysis. Five years on from initially joining the business, Sarah has progressed in her career to a lead materials scientist. She leads and manages Renishaw's materials research and development group, which carries out R&D projects with a materials focus for all of Renishaw's product divisions globally. Hello, Sarah, and thanks very much for agreeing to participate in this WIM3 podcast interview. So perhaps if we could just start by you telling me a little bit about your background in education and how this uh, led you to eventually studying and researching materials. So, hello. I actually had quite an interesting background in the terms that I don't think it was particularly conventional for somebody who's ended up with a doctorate and and leading and working in R&D. I had quite a bad school time, um, had uh, developmental disorders and a level of neurodiversity that resulted in some learning difficulties. Um, And during my sort of school years, I was always, you know, persuaded to not do some of the STEM subjects, despite the fact I really enjoyed them. Um, So when it came around to sort of doing my A-levels, I, you know, was persuaded not to do chemistry. I ended up doing, you know, um, biology, I have to think now, business business studies um, um, and PE. 
um, with design technology, which was in specifically like resistant materials. So that's where I discovered material science, yeah. I think, in the first instance. I've, I've heard that from quite a lot of people. Um, so when I was looking at university degrees, I, honestly, I had no idea what to do. And just, i not joking, I stumbled across material science, um, sort of looking into sports technology, believe it or yeah. not, at the time. Um, I was really into sort of the Blade Runners. And yeah. I think there was a lot of news articles at the time when I was looking at going to university on the shark skin suits that got banned from the Olympics because they yeah. were too good. Yeah. Um, so I originally looked at sports technology and then there was a couple of degrees out there and um, I ended up doing a joint honours degree at the University of Birmingham in sports science and material science. Oh. Um, my school was pretty happy about that because they always saw me as a sports person. I, I found quite a good outlet as a kid running around the fields and doing all sorts of things from hockey to multi-eventing and they were like, oh, that that looks pretty good. It's a halfway house. And listen to my naivety at the time, sports science is probably one of the hardest degrees that you can do. <laughs> um, and to boot a joint honours degree, which ended up being around 80% of two degree courses. Um, so got myself into university, discovered the world of material science kind of by accident, and then um, got onto that undergrad degree. I really struggled with my undergrad shockingly um passing my first year I think with 41 percent um scraping scraping by having to do a few retake exams um and then into my second year I did start finding my footing as the work became a bit more close to application yeah and ended up getting a, a 2-1 um and offered to join a PhD yeah. which I think during my younger years oh goodness I wouldn't have dreamt of it I didn't yeah. probably know what the acronym meant yeah. at the time I think I had to look it up um but the uh, academic that I did my final year project with at university sort of noticed a, I guess a, a good skill that I had in, in interest in the world and said to me oh you know have you thought of this <laughs> I think I took about three months to get an answer back to her <laughs> best, but um, then ended up going into a PhD in corrosion science um, and I worked with Diamond Light Source uh, during that doctorate yeah. doing quite fundamental research on propagation and initiation of corrosion in aerospace alloys uh, using CT tomography and Raman spectroscopy and I think that probably brings us to the end of my was, academics. Yeah, yeah. So was your, was your PhD industrially sponsored or was it a fundamental it was. It was half and half. So I think because it was with uh, Diamond were the co-funder yeah. um, and the other half of my funding came from our school um, of materials and metallurgy yeah. at Birmingham. Um, and I find now that I work in industry, actually, the stuff that Diamond does, I would call is very fundamental. Um, yeah. But I would say it had, well, what I thought of at the time very naively in, in industrial application in the aerospace um, industry, looking, you know, at trying to, understand propagation of corrosion processes so that they could be applied to life cycle analysis yes. um and i think we'll come on to later as to what my rude awakening was at the <laughs> time i think in my second year of my phd why that wasn't the case but um it had i think uh, a, a tone of industry application but really i was looking down trl levels one and two so technology readiness uh, really just seeing something for the first time yeah. that sort of one wanderlust approach to science yeah. yeah so a lot a long a long way from commercialization oh yeah and implementation <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but at the time I didn't know that <laughs> uh -oh. 
and and then after your PhD, you made a decision to move from academia into industry to start your post-academic career. What influenced that choice? Oh, as I just hinted, some some funny moments. I think it's a wonderful thing to go around and and you know, as a PhD student, you think you're kind of invincible and you're learning all these cutting edge things and everything has such an impact because you mm. kind of convince yourself to get through it in that way and I think to me I just found my subject so interesting it was um, seeing things that had never been seen but I um, started going to conferences and I'll never forget the moment I um, presented at a conference it was just a poster and I, I will not name the industry partners but I had two wonderful women sort of come up to me and I don't think I could have imagined it in any other way I looked at my work and went it's really really interesting yeah. um, what's it for I went, oh, yeah, life cycle analysis. You know, you, you input the data. We've got an understanding of this. You guys can use it to extend the life of your planes. And they went, but that's not how we do that. Um, first of all, I was looking at something as a, as a worst case scenario, yeah. uh, simplistically to make the understanding of the science a little bit yeah. easier. So there was like no conversion coatings, no paints, no, no anodizing, yeah. nothing. It was just bare end of um grain aluminium and I just sort of got a bit stumped I remember just sitting and I think it was at the the Royal Institute of Chemistry and I was like I'm in this really really cool place and I feel like a bit of a fraud um <laughs> that very heart sinking moment and you're like oh no it's for nothing um I mean it didn't take away from me that the things I was looking at were really cool but I realized in that moment and I had to think back to you know why did I end up going and want to look at you know sports technology stuff back in the day it was because I wanted to have stuff in the real world and um I think at that moment I went yeah I think I'd like to work in industry <laughs> because I've, I need to know what this gap was I just yeah. sort of what did I miss um so I think at that point I I finished my doctorate and uh, it did take me a bit longer than usual I'm very slow at writing <laughs> but I um I sat in front of a, a, a Renishaw ramen for about two years. Yeah. Um, so I thought to myself, I should probably Google this company. Yeah. Um, I'd like to say it was a much cooler uh, story than that. But honestly, I just was like, oh, looking at bits of kit around the lab going, I wonder if they'll hire me. Yeah. Um, and just so happened that there was a, a job going um, for a material scientist um, in a materials analysis and research team. Um, I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. I was quite besides myself at this point of like, what's the point of the world? Um, but anyway, I went in for an interview and I started my job a week later. Wow. So um, it was a bit of a quick start. Uh, mm. And I think I ended up in the right place. So um, the why the why industry, it, it was just actually to see if I could make a difference to things actually where it would happen yeah. rather than me just finding out the why for things it was the why and and the why yeah. buts and the why where yeah. uh, which really enticed me into industry so can you describe your current role at Renishaw and the career progression that you've had since joining Renishaw in your first role yeah I think I, I mean I do I do work still in the same team I've, yeah. I've worked for the materials analysis and research department which is um it's a global it, oddly as a service division 
um, which serves Renishaw worldwide. So, you know, our, our ramen stuff and um, AM all the way through to our machine tool products, our laser calibration systems, which I did come across at Diamond, actually, which is quite funny. Yeah. We used to align the system. I've, I've seen it pop up elsewhere. I don't know why I just sit next to the ramen for long enough, got the name ingrained into me. But um, my naivety uh, of just thinking they did one thing changed distinctively when I worked for all of them. Yeah. Um, medical, all sorts of things. And I started off, like I say, just as a very general material scientist yeah. looking at failure analysis and causation. So it was very much a, a reactive role looking at why, uh, you know, machine shop failures, what's wrong with this <laughs> aluminium, what's the brown stuff on this lens, um, and really utilised my sort of skills in, in CT, Raman and mostly characterization yeah. of, of failure modes. Um, from there, I, I, I worked uh, as a material scientist in the analysis team for about two years um, and started taking on managerial roles. Yeah. Um, part of my role back then was also in research. It's not what I would call research now, but I um, had a few side projects to keep me entertained while we yeah. waited for, for things to break. Um, and it was kind of 50-50. Uh, had a couple placement students and my first full-time member of staff to yeah. manage um, it was something I've always wanted to do and then the pandemic happened <laughs> <laughs> and I can't think of a, a quicker way to be escalated through a business than a pandemic where everyone gets put on furlough and you decide to stay on <laughs> um, so my analysis role sort of turned to being a, a d- departmental point of contact uh, yeah. with with my manager, where the only two people ended up working uh, for Global Renishaw yeah. at the time. Um, and I don't know what it was, but it, at that time, it gave me a really big insight of, hang on a minute, I'm now getting all the analysis through. I had this very holistic view then of not just other people yeah. taking on jobs. I had them all coming to me. And I realised goodness me there's there's lots of things that are repeating here there's there's lots of opportunity to improve develop and like I say I've ended up going into R&D um and after that pandemic I sort of turned around to my my managers and I think Renishaw has got a very much go do things attitude um and I started sort of collecting data and strategizing really and how to do a bit more R&D and it not just being sort of a side piece yeah. to this reactive yeah. role that I was doing and I think in the reactive unless it's your role intentionally you you do just react and kind of just pit along in the background of things that you find interesting in terms of research um so I proposed this up, upstairs to the what I would call the grown-ups they'd hate me for <laughs> saying that but um presented essentially like we could be doing more I think we need to expand um and that expanse was granted to me um my negotiation skills won yeah. I don't know how um and I ended up give, being given the opportunity to have a specific research and development stream in material science at Renishaw wow. um so created a, a, a research global service um and was able to in the last two years um move out of an analysis role i don't do any of it anymore which is great (laughs) um and primarily just run a specialist r&d team where i've got um i identified the areas in in the business where we we needed knowledge really and needed knowledge transfer and what might seem like a really difficult question to an engineer is a five minute answer to someone who knows what they're talking about um so I now lead um, a specific materials R&D um, group within materials analysis and research still, um, but the group has expanded um, by 50% uh, 
since 2021, which is absolutely fantastic. And we've got streams now available to us for graduates, placements, um, apprentices, and all sorts of things. So I've, I've gone from being a team member to, to running a team <laughs> in the space of five years. Yeah. Um, so yeah. not, not a bad career pathway, <laughs> I suppose. Um, no. Yeah, but so, thoroughly yeah. enjoying it. Yeah, so it turns out that the pandemic resulted in a sort of step change for you. So, the, the pandemic holds a, a really odd collection of happy memories for me. Um, it was it was great because I could sit on on Teams and Zoom and talk to more academics and go to webinars and seminars yeah. and just sort of have my world like reopened in the opposite direction to academia again. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think it's kind of stayed um, and there's much more, you know, ease in speaking to a lot more people across the, the UK and the world. So, um, yeah, the pandemic was great for me, <laughs> which I, I mean, it was a miserable time for all and I don't think we should say not. I mean, I had opportunities of working on some key manufacturing parts for ventilators and um, it was wonderful to see the company just make moves and try and make a difference oh, so it certainly what, made a difference to my career yeah definitely so what do you consider to be your most successful significant achievement in your career so far and why oh I had to sit and think of this and I think not in a bad way but in a way that there's awful lots of good things yeah. um I think it, it's worth noting that you know uh I'd like to say equity diversity and inclusion is becoming like a significant part of people's lives especially in industry I, I found when I was doing my PhD and, and teaching and, and doing academic things you live in a, an incredibly diverse world because you know universities are open to everybody and all um, and I think for me it's just being a part of that EDI development within a company and yeah. feeling as though my point of view and persuasion has helped you know support progress and change um and for me it was like you know getting my new team in and, and shaping it how I wanted to uh rather than it being as it's been done before I I'm really really quite proud of that fact and I've got you know a, an incredibly multidisciplinary team explaining to engineers actually that material scientists have their own disciplines within material science yeah. was quite fun <laughs> and then and then having you know a, an approach where I'm you know no matter your, your your race, gender, sexuality, religion, I've created a team that, you know, can do anything. Um, and it's beautiful to sit down in the lunchtimes that we have uh, and talk. But as a, a group, no matter what our backgrounds are, we've all had eureka moments together. And I think that's just the beauty of, of STEM, really, is that yeah. it really doesn't matter. It speaks for itself. Um, I'll never forget, come and have a look in this microscope. And all of us gasped in a room with seven of us in a, a, our first sort of like little innovation moment as a team. Mm. Um, and for me, that's sort of one of my biggest achievements is just being able to create that environment, um, which I know sounds awfully cheesy, but um, <laughs> it's not always about the science, it's about the setting yeah. the science has done in. But um, it's been fab to see the company grow as well in the last five years um, and walk around with my rainbow badge on without being absolutely terrified is quite a fun achievement yeah. as well yeah um, yeah and and you're you're active in stem outreach does your passion for that extend from your desire to improve equity diversity and inclusion 
yes and no like I think from definitely the inclusion piece um uh, it's quite amazing I think I stumbled upon material science and I feel like because I'm in a, a very engineering uh, company, I think a lot of people just know Renishaw for our, our spectroscopy and our AM, but we're mm. a world leading manufacturer. And, you know, the ability to teach people that engineering is a lot more than just uh, mechanical engineering or civil engineering mm. or chemical engineering is honestly one of my favorite things to do because I think it, we have to convince people or make opportunities for people where they can just walk into our subjects uh, without fear or you know being terrified of being sort of the outlier um and I think for me STEM when I was in the early stages of my career wasn't really on the agenda but again lockdown changed that for me significantly I did quite a lot of talks with schools and um Renishaw have multiple STEM outreach departments yeah. we've got our own centers and it's been wonderful to be invited to talk and um just trying to convince young girls especially that they have a place that exists and they shouldn't be scared of things that they find cool because we come from a, a horrible world especially with like you know the world of our online media and um for me it's certainly what I I'm trying to be the person I wanted to have in front of me when I was younger um and provide people with the information that I wish I had didn't have mm. um like I say, I, I still like doing my my chartership was actually a really interesting process because I put off doing my CN because I didn't see myself as an engineer. Mm -hmm. I now label myself as a scientist and reluctant engineer. <laughs> but just just knowing that, like I say, engineering isn't just like maths, maths, maths mm -hmm. or um, calculation, calculation, calculation was like a huge coming of age for me. And I just I feel as though I was quite slow in my process to get to that and I just wouldn't want that for somebody else they should be able to explore with a freedom of thought and safety um so I do love getting people involved in STEM and I am very biased towards material science and engineering now I think I blew a couple of people's mind in my last STEM outreach talk okay. um because at the end of the day we've got a cool enough subject we've got ages of time named after us you know yeah. the stone age the iron age um and the steel age so they all kind of went oh my goodness we actually have to make things out of materials <laughs> um yeah. which I find hugely enjoyable right. yeah and I, th I think it surprises some people that materials don't just stay the same so you know <laughs> like if the first steel or the first cast iron or the first single type of plastic was invented I think some people don't understand that work needs to take place to change to the range and the improved oh. offering that's available today I think some people don't think about that that's absolutely so on point that's unbelievable uh, you know you see the development in phones you see yeah. the development yeah. from them the, the bricks that we used to have all the way through to our mobile phones and for me that's down to the materials yeah. used the materials open the door to new technologies um and it's quite funny working heavily like across the like um disciplinarily i've got my word out there that was good um with, with engineers and different types of engineers it is really that selling point of like you can't make this thing better without a development in the materials I uh, just yeah sorry no one's ever elegantly put it like that Fiona thank you um, I might nick that one for my next <laughs> STEM talk and do you get do you get a lot of female participation in your STEM outreach event thinking back to out looking out on the room actually um it's improving 
yeah. it definitely definitely is improving and I think um that's down to years of you know things like STEMettes and you know girls who code and you know wonderful people volunteering their time to it but we need to keep going but yeah it's certainly no longer I think uh it's quite sad when you see sort of the the 20 percent number of 20 percent women you're going come on <laughs> more but it, it's definitely going in the right direction it's notable but it's definitely not half and half yet no. which would you know uh, reflect our society but never mind we are getting there what do you consider has been your biggest obstacle or challenge that you've faced in your career to date and what did you do to overcome that goodness me trying not to get too deep on this one but I've imposter syndrome um I think because I I struggled at school I I was never particularly perceived as academic um I'm certainly imaginative I'll I'll give you that that's probably the only thing I've (laughs) not got imposter syndrome for but (laughs) honestly just having that like self-belief that you're not in the wrong place and you're not in the wrong surroundings and you can lead by what you enjoy I just never felt that I was good enough. And I think it's really, really limited me in sort of some of the progress that I've made and, you know, always finding yourself apologising or fretting that, oh, or caveating, oh, you know, this might not be right, but. Um, and, yeah, it, it's 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 a really horrible place to live. I think I've discussed this with, you know, other academics, even people who've come on just from university level. Yeah. It's... It, a big struggle for lots of people and for me certainly I think I've only shook it in the last six months which is <laughs> terrible to say considering I finished university quite a while ago um certainly for me getting started and doing that for my own sense of self and and um ownership of what I'm good at is is definitely a help but um I've actually just found surrounding myself and having having conversations with people who are in a similar boat and I've got a wonderful mentor um, who I picked because she was a woman in a a high up position. (laughs) Um, It certainly helps to hear it from other people and where they've progressed and are where you want to be. They also have it too. So um, it's, yeah, it's a horrible thing. Like I say, I'm putting it to rest now, thankfully. Yeah. Can do attitude. Uh, Yeah. And I think it's something that women tend to suffer from more than men. It's, it's not you know I think men sometimes can sort of over overestimate their capabilities and they're quite confident about all the things they can do whereas I think women often look the other way at all their shortcomings and they're, they're scared to put themselves out there and confidently say yes I can do all of that Absolutely. I don't think I've had many conversations with people not in minority groups, to be honest with you, just to sort of maybe broaden um, that that catchment area. I significantly feel, you know, (laughs) I yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely a trend, which is, again, why I think I'm so interested in just showing people that you don't have to be perfect to do STEM. Um, You don't have to be brilliant in the way that society wants you to be you can be brilliant in the way that you want to be and people's uniqueness and the combination of that you know cognitive diversity and um sometimes somebody's self-doubt can actually be the most helpful thing on a project um you know not not being a sheep and questioning the crowd I think is a really key part of innovation so uh, yeah 
it's one of the reasons I like to mentor a lot and I just grab female colleagues and go do you feel like this um <laughs> and I think everybody just needs to talk and be a little bit more open maybe in industrial settings as well um because I, I I bet there's probably a few guys out there that also have oh yeah I don't think yeah it's, 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 it's not only a I'd say majority, male or minority minority group, groups yeah. yeah absolutely um but I have to admit the trend is probably about 80% women I have these conversations with for sure. Um, I think even you and I have had that chat yeah. when we first met. So mm-hmm. um, gosh, it's a terrifying thing to think about the extra progress we could have made in this world if somebody was a little bit more confident to do something. I think definitely. And I think as you sort of get more mature, I think you stop worrying so much about what other people think. So I know personally, I've been more prepared to give things a go. Or if I see something and I think, well, actually, I can do at least as well as that other person, then I'm sort of not as reluctant to come forward. Because I just think now, if I don't try, then for sure, I can't succeed. Uh, you know, And I oh. think that's something that's come with you know, sort of maturity that um, mm. you, you, you're not not so bothered about, well, they'll all say I'm a fool behind my back or something. You're not so bothered about it. Oh, gosh, I know. I think it took me years to realise it's OK to sit and ask questions yeah. in presentations and meetings, almost maybe to the point where I'm now too, too, too bold, <laughs> too loud and ask too many questions. Yeah. But um especially in the world of innovation, we can't have people biting their tongues. I think it's such a loss of idea and thought. So oh, I'm, I'm glad you've got to the point where you're you're happy and we should nurture it in, in more people. Um, I should take a leaf out of your book every time I go, <laughs> sorry, this might be a stupid question, but we should just ask the question, shouldn't we? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that, another thing I've t- consciously done is to stop saying sorry. Because I thought, oh, well, actually, I'm, so I'm actually, actually, I'm not sorry. And <laughs> so I'm not going to say it anymore. <laughs> I need to work on it. I really honestly do. I, I actually find myself a lot of the time typing emails with really sorry for the no, slow reply no, or sorry if I've caused delay. No, or, sorry if no, this is a stupid question. I've backspaced it. I consciously stopped doing that because I thought, well, actually, I'm doing the best I can in the time available and I'm no longer sorry (laughs) oh gosh no I'm doing the thing um I shouldn't be sorry for doing it so oh my goodness it makes me laugh but you've you've done really well in you know your academic uh, studies and also your career but is there anything you wish you'd known or done differently earlier when you were starting out (laughs) that you'd pass on to someone else oh probably the hardest question I'll get just because of the the self-reflection of I think it takes a certain person and I think for me as an individual I've got a very um ah screw it sort of you could swap that out for a worse swear word maybe but like I've got a very much like a uh, I'll go I'll just go do things um and have a, a horrendous level of false confidence whilst also of oh, the juxtaposition of my brain of having imposter syndrome and actually being ridiculous at times but I think a lot of my early choices and the reason I think I came quite late into things is I I, I took other people's interpretation or opinion of what my likes and dislikes were to make choices for myself. And I really do wish I'd, you know, struggled more and listened less. I know that sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> I wish I'd kind of just 
uh, you know, I, I didn't do one of my biggest failings. I didn't do A-level chemistry because someone was like, oh, I'd be too difficult. And it's so funny. I've caught up with the, the, the professor since and she was like, we would have helped you. Um, you shouldn't you shouldn't have listened to your your personal tutors or your your learning aid and just done it and we'd have we'd have put yeah we'd have made it your way and like I said I just I really wish I'd struggled more and listened less and I can only express that to other people pick the things that you like not the things that you think society yeah. thinks you should do um, I think some of the best people I've come across since working are the ones who've got really quite, uh, one of my best friends and colleagues has got a really bizarre mixture of maths and design and yeah. did like fine art and, yeah. and yeah. In higher maths and probably one of the best engineers that I've ever met because of that multifaceted, non-conformal combination yeah. of skills. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I... I I wish I'd stayed broader for longer. Um, it was really interesting going into that sort of pinhole approach for my doctorate. I think that's one word of advice I'd love to give PhD students, I suppose, is like, be aware of the rabbit hole. Yeah. Because um, when I'm, you know, in my industry setting, you you kind of have those core skills as you learn uh, through getting that PhD, that independence, that independent learning and thinking and but combining that with a more holistic view would would have benefited me considerably earlier on of just someone saying hang on a minute think about the world not just yeah. about the thing you're yeah. doing in it um to yeah. just make a bit more of a holistic and all-rounded person but um yeah, yeah. I yeah I think the, the the approach I've taken is that I'm, I'm probably quite a stubborn and and determined person so the thing so the things that really matter to me I'll go for it, even if it's difficult, you know, so, because when I was at school, the head teacher told me that um, the science classes had to be given, they had to give priority to A-level science for boys because their careers ooh, were important, ooh. even though, even though, even though I had better grades than all of them. And um so um, at 16 I told my head teacher that I didn't value his opinion and I was going to carry on and do science subjects <laughs> oh outstanding Fern I think that's why we get along <laughs> but I think yeah so, oh, so is there anything no, else you'd like to add to this <laughs> I, I think yeah just for for other people who yeah. you know might have uh I'm at the other end of that spectrum I, I wasn't good at school yeah <laughs> I, I ended up, I'm, I'm very, very practical. You know, I was incredibly privileged as a child to have sort of a, a granddad who used to let me just destroy things yeah. in, in the art of yeah. attempting to put them back together. Um, he was an electrical engineer yeah. and I, you know, got digital cop radios yeah. and plugs and stuff yeah. as a way of distracting me. I'm, I'm not from the iPad kid era, yeah. unfortunately, or the TV kid era. I didn't really play any games. And it's, um, you know, one of those things where, just I, I'm not good at exams like sitting and sort of regurgitating mm. information yeah. wasn't isn't my no. thing it's you know taking everything as a whole and then making judgments and decisions to sort of make a new thing it's something yeah. I'm really good at that sort yeah. of like in a, I'm going to use the cheesy word of innovation but I, I just wished as a kid that that had been nurtured more in me and I wasn't so dis and I guess it's what kind of has ended up in my imposter syndrome. I still don't believe that I fit societal norms because I didn't have a stars coming in my, my ears. You can still put an equation in front of me. I look at it and go, uh, give me an hour. I'll get back to you because I'm going to have to sit and process my way through figuring out what on earth it means. But I think nurturing what 
is different types of intelligence mm. I just wish that had been done when I was at school. I think we're made to make choices extremely early in our in our British schooling system. Um, and if I was to go back and do it again, I'd definitely have picked different A-levels. I'd have done them later. I've always wanted to go back and do a master's degree, despite the fact I have a PhD, yeah. weird one, I know. But yeah. oh, collecting them like Pokemons. Um, but yeah, just re-envisioning what intelligence is I think is something that's really important and I wish that I'd had that example role model or statement given to me when I was younger thanks very much awesome If you would like to find out more about the IOM3 Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining Group, please visit the IOM3 website at www.iom3.org or follow us on LinkedIn or by searching IOM3 Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining. Please also don't forget to subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify. information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify